Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Todd Harris, who touches just about every aspect of the esports ecosystem, from being an adjunct professor, CEO at Skillshot, which is a production company, Ghost Gaming, which is an esports organization, and serving as board chair of the Atlanta Esports Alliance. He's going to make sense of this all-encompassing esports space and share a lot of insights. Join me in talking to Todd. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, Todd Harris, thank you so much for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. How is everything in Atlanta, Georgia? Beautiful sunny day. John, good to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited about this episode. I have followed what you at at Skillshot and Ghost Gaming have done. I've been a fan of what you have accomplished in this space, and you're somebody who really inspires me as to, you know, trailblazing the space, figuring out where it will go, and really supporting the community and all the things that I'm I'm super duper excited to get in with you today. So first to start, why don't you tell our audience what is Skillshot? What is Ghost Gaming? And we'll take it from there. Awesome. And uh, I appreciate that. And uh, also a fan of what you're doing, putting content out there. We're all learning and growing and trying to build this industry together. So it takes a lot of allies. Skillshot is basically an esports event and production company. So uh, we do live events. We have a production studio. We do some brand integration and consulting. And uh, that's what Skillshot is. And Ghost Gaming is an esports org, which these days, I'm sure we'll get into it, but esports teams, most of them do more than just play video games competitively. They have some other aspect of lifestyle or content, community, culture. Ghost has all those things. So Skillshot's primarily a B2B company. So we market to other brands and businesses, our production services, and then Ghost is more of a B2C company where we're building community and, and fandom. Very interesting. So, I, And I believe that you started Skillshot as CEO um, first and then Ghost emerged. There was a merger. Take me through that collaboration because I think it's really interesting. You guys have kind of captured either all or a very large chunk of that ecosystem with this merger. So take me through some of the strategy and the process of that coming together. Sure. Well, do you want me to start with high res or just start with Skillshot? Please, let's start wherever the right spot is for the, for the audience to best understand what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Without going really far back, my professional world in gaming started with high res studios um, I'm a technical person, did a lot of startup uh, tech companies before that. But High res Studios is a game publisher. So we make the game Smite, Paladins, Realm Royale, Rogue Company, others. And so that's what got me into gaming was actually creating games, developing IP, developing the game, publishing them, etc. And as a relatively small developer... Irez is now about 450 people, so a mid-sized developer. But when we started, there were four of us. And, uh, and for our first few games, we were in the low hundreds. And so in order to compete against many of the other big, bigger 
more well-funded publishers out there, we leaned into esports, video marketing, and influencer marketing so that people would be aware of the game. And uh, we saw a very strong correlation between those that were watching video content about Smite and watching the Smite Pro League. And they tended to spend more time in the game, be more engaged, and spend more money in the game. Interesting. And so, as a publisher, it's like, where do we put our marketing dollars? Well, this esports thing seems to work. It actually has return on investment for us. So, that's how I got into gaming. And then, right before the pandemic, saw the opportunity where this esports capability that we developed, it could be for more than just one publisher. We could make it horizontal and we could serve all the leading games out there. So, mm. as you mentioned, John, we started with Skillshot and Skillshot was originally a part of Hi-Rez Studios. So, management team bought out Skillshot from Hi-Rez, took that independent, said, hey, we're going to start working with Overwatch and we're going to start working with Halo and Super Smash and doing other games not from that publisher. And then a little bit into that journey, we had an opportunity to acquire Ghost Gaming, which is a brand that was built originally in Los Angeles. And we really loved the style, the graphic mark. Here, I'm, I'll wrap it. There, there we go. Very I'll clean. Very clean. Yeah. I like so uh, we liked a lot about the mark being differentiated in the space and they had built up a good culture. So started with Skillshot and then added Ghost after that. Interesting. So if I'm following you right, so you're basically at a publisher where you're limited to the games that you're publishing to interact with. You recognize that esports is a thing that esports enthusiasts, as the latest annual report would refer to them as, are spending more money, they're more engaged and saying, wait a minute, this is a great way to market, but let's kind of separate from this publisher so then we can go white label or we can support all sorts of different uh, IP and different games. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by iShaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder Chris Gronkowski. Uh, What I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality, and the customization. iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for iShaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your iShaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC Drop branded ice shaker at icehaker.com forward slash DLC Drop. Save 20% on all ice shaker products with the discount code DLC Drop. Exactly. I mean, as the ultimate endemic partner or sponsor, the game developer, the game publisher, you know, clearly Riot thinks there is return to support to some degree. League right. of Legends and Valorant because they have return. And it was the same with Hi-Rez. But the, the jump was really, okay, in the future, it's not going to only be game publishers that have marketing return through gaming and esports and gaming culture. It's right. going to be 
Coca-Cola, it's going to be State Farm, it's going to be eventually every brand that wants to reach the next generation is going to eventually participate. So around that thought hypothesis, that's when we spun out Skillshot. Interesting. So when you first recognized esports, was this something that you saw somebody else doing it and you said that looks like they're doing it really well or they're they're getting good traction or did you do something or or was it something completely out of the blue that um helped you recognize this well we definitely saw other people doing it i'd say in the west it really was only um riot games as a publisher that was that early supporting their title at that time league of legends and fairly modestly taking the game around to shows like PAX and holding competitions. It was nowhere near the scale it is today, but they were certainly someone else here in the Western market that was, that was uh, activating esports. But it, it started pretty organically for us because with the game Smite, the community was self-organizing tournaments, weekend tournaments mm. with us as the game publisher, or event organizer not doing anything. We, we discovered that. And then we thought, well, what if we put $100 towards this weekend's tournament as prizing? Okay, yeah. now what if it's $200? Okay, now if, what if we get this intern and we use this spare closet that we're not using for anything else and they're on a microphone and they start doing commentating? And this was very, very early uh, for Twitch and very mm -hmm. early for gamers on YouTube. And within two years, we went from a $100 weekend tournament to a world championship with a $2.6 million prize pool crowdfunded by the community, wow. sold out arena and 5 million people watching online. So we were supporting one title at the same time the esports industry in general was rising because there were other stories out there but it was early days we just caught caught a good wave that's really interesting um to hear that the community is kind of taking the initiative and being proactive and saying hey let's just do tournaments around this now a lot of people who are familiar with gaming are familiar with the ip issue where the publisher owns the ip that's different than traditional sports where nobody owns football, basketball, baseball, but they do own the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball, of course. First of all, my first question is, what was the reaction as a publisher when someone else is using your IP to generate these tournaments? I think a lot of us would hope or wish that a lot of these publishers were just like, oh yeah, do your thing, it's going to have a halo effect, whatever. The reality, more often than not, seems to be, you can't do that. What was your experience? So, you're exactly right in that right now, the publishers are on a spectrum between very, let's call it laissez-faire, do your thing. An example is probably Valve, you know, with, with CSGO and mm -hmm. how they allow third parties to, to very controlling where uh, every tournament, small, medium, and large, there needs to be a strict business relationship and it's less flexible. And I don't personally think there is one perfect answer. I think it just has to be deliberate, thought out approach from the publisher, particular to high res and our IP. We were always fairly 
uh, I'll say liberal and uh, allowing in terms of third party tournaments running our IP. As long as they were doing it the right way, meaning they had well-published rules, they were not integrating sponsors that were in vice categories, they were, you know, running it with integrity, etc., then it was good engagement for us. And again, as a, let's call it at that time, small, now mid-sized publisher, we kind of needed to be a little nicer than than everybody else, right? It was engagement where other people were putting their effort and passion towards it. It wouldn't really have served our interest to shut it down. And so, um, yeah, when you're a publisher, though, it is your IP. You've spent, you know, in most cases, millions, sometimes hundreds of millions developing it. So you're protective of it. And getting that balance right is, uh, you know, the dance that the industry's in right now on the right level of control. Yeah, it's a good point that you needed some help or or you had to be a little more willing because you were not some huge AAA publisher. I always say from a partnership perspective, you know, a lot of times it's always easier to work with the number two guy or the middle of the pack guy because they need you just as much as you need them. In fact, there's one of the most famous print ads of all time is uh, Avis Car Rental and their whole campaign was we're number two and the service is better the cars are cleaner, X, Y, Z, because they have to be. You go to Hertz, they're resting on their laurels over there at number one. You know, we have to be better. And so it sounds like that was a a, a similar... We we did one better than Avis. So at the time of Smite, there were two big... There were multiple MOBAs fighting it out. League of Legends and Dota 2 were both larger than us. And so at the Smite World Championship, we actually handed to the crowd foam fingers that were number three and we proudly said we're number three and we uh we leaned into that message but the reality is a lot of other mobas came and went and didn't make it to number three with some really strong ip you know both comic ips had had moba dc and marvel there were other very well funded games in that category that didn't quite succeed uh yeah uh, Blizzard's Heroes of the Storm would be another example. I mean, a lot that didn't make it to the level of uh, of Smite. So, well, and you talk about the crowdfunding aspect with the prize pool. The Dota Two prize pool is very famous. Obviously, if you look up the highest er- uh, earners as pro esports players, they're always Dota Two players because they've won the international, and it's always the news. How much? How much is it going to be this year, etc. I'm curious from your insider perspective, you know, some of us a little further on the outside are like, why aren't more publishers, more leagues doing this when this one community is doing it so very well? And will we see it in some of these other uh, leagues? From your perspective, do you have an answer or or any thoughts on that? Well, I'm a big fan of crowdfunding in general and dota 2 was an inspiration for us at at smite exactly as you said it seemed to work really well it gets the community involved and they can support it to a great extent so i do think there will be more and more crowdfunding campaigns i think without getting into the weeds of of web3 and nfts and that technology stack and some of the scammy things that sometimes go on there. <laughs> yeah, the, the sentiment behind that is you have a community that really wants to get involved and put some skin in the game when they have passion. And so crowdfunding doesn't have to be any new technology, just the fact 
that it is a model is is really effective. So I think you will see more and more developers crowdfund. Now that's separate from there's pros and cons of having one massive event once a year. It's great for PR. It's great for hype. Everyone's looking at it. But I will tell you that as we looked at developing the ecosystem, it's not great for players because one team gets a big payday, maybe a few teams, but they have to pay their apartment and food bill all year long. And so we looked for models that after that event were more sustainable and gave more of a guaranteed or at least kind of closer to guaranteed monthly income or stipend for many of the players. And again, that's what a lot of these sports leagues look to do is try to make it sustainable for all the, for the players, for the teams, of course, for the publisher as well. Yeah. All the different stakeholders. That's a really good perspective on the, the perspective of the players. You make it to the international, you get the opportunity and maybe you don't perform as well. And it's like, wow, how am I paying the light bill? <laughs> exactly. So going from high res over to uh, Skillshot, what was that experience going from we're controlling the IP, even though you're quite liberal with it, to we don't control the IP and now we're working within somebody else's guidelines? Yeah, it's certainly different. I mean, we had a bit of an advantage because we, our team had been publishers for 15 years. And so we we had strong relationships with the other publishers, particularly those who make multiplayer games because you see each other at development conferences and trade shows and it's a fairly small group at the end of the day. So yeah. it's nice that we had those relationships and had some earned trust. And so we very quickly moved from just not the high-res IP. We did the first Overwatch homestand in Atlanta. Uh, they, there was one in Dallas, and this was for the Overwatch I was League, there. and we yeah. worked with that team to, to activate that in Atlanta, which was a great event. We worked with our friends over at Supercell and ran about a year of uh, Brawlhalla across multiple regions. Oh, oh sorry, um, Brawl Stars. Uh, Brawl Stars is their mobile game. Yeah. We also do stuff with Brawlhalla from our friends at Ubisoft and Blue Mammoth. So we quickly kind of reached out to those publishers who we had known as a game developer and we knew they needed esports services and that's been successful for us in terms of white label work where mm -hmm. a publisher wants an event they want someone trusted who will execute it it helps that we were a developer so we know what matters to them we try to treat the right. event like it was our event spend their money like it was our money at high res and, um, and that was helpful. And then, of course, there's some events that we do on our own where we are the owner and the operator of the event. And again, it's just it's helpful to have those relationships to be able to get a yes on using IP. Yeah, you know, something that is interesting about the sports space is how it's grown, matured, and then you have outside players in various... Uh, industries various disciplines looking at the space coming into the space uh one of those groups are production companies right so you've got these production companies who they do all these big events and they look at esports and they, they're going to see headlines they're going to see some some big numbers out in poland once a year you know and say hey i need to get in that space one thing that i've identified i'm curious to get your perspective on it is the nuance of tournament organizing 
tournament organizing is something that you're going to experience in esports that you will not experience at a corporate event or a live music show or what have you. And it also takes a lot of experience and understanding of it's different based on the different game. It's based on the different event. Talk a little bit about that major difference that you at Skillshot provide that you know someone else may not be. It's a great point. Tournament administration is the clearest example of a function that is very specialized by game and, and you need to be really good at it because the flow of the tournament, of course, affects your schedule, your run of show, your exception management. How do you handle when a player is disqualified, right? And, and mm. how are you handling that integrated into the live production? So a lot of expertise around tournament administration, a lot of expertise around talent and talent management. Many first time, well, many experienced production companies new to esports, they kind of think, well, we're going to get the really good looking articulate people. And they don't realize that what this audience cares about is knowledge of game and depth and authenticity over everything. Right. And that is a skill set to identify those people. Those people are different per game and per community who's known, who's liked, who's not. And uh, then another really specific example on the production line itself. So when you go into our production studio and you're seeing the technical director and the graphics operator and the instant replay and the executive producer, many of these roles are similar to what you would find in a live sports or TV newsroom. But the, the observer, the person who is inside the game, Overwatch or smite or league of legends you know that is actually controlling the camera on the field of play mm -hmm. they really have to know the game or they miss hype plays and of course twitch chat lets them have it so uh there's a lot of expertise specific to esports yeah and it's surprising how much that one piece affects everything else you know i mean these are one, one of the things i love about rocket league is that the matches are timed <laughs> <laughs> you know, and as I think about dad bringing little Johnny to the event and, you know, you're all to a League of Legends event and you're like, wait, this is eight hours and actually it's going to be 12 hours because, you know, <laughs> the matches between the two teams are longer because they had to play five or seven maps, what have you, rather than just three. And then who knows how long those maps took and X, Y, Z. So just that piece alone affects so much. And then you've got all these other things that I think the, the point we're taking here is that you really have to focus in on that tournament administration piece if you want to be successful as a production company. Yeah. And it's great that other production companies are, are getting involved and they're bringing in other brands and stakeholders. And of course, everyone's adding something. They, they might be bringing a great element from, uh, from an EDM concert that they did or a sports right. event that adds to esports but but you're right i mean we recommend that if you are coming from outside of esports whether you're working with skillshot or someone else who has many years in the field you just want to do that it's not going to turn out well for your first event if you're not partnered with a company that is somewhat endemic to the space yeah now i'd love to take you over to the the org side of things i think this is really interesting conversation because Orgs have it tough. It's a it's a tough business. And 
I'm pretty close with a number of orgs. I'm pretty close with Optic here in Dallas. Got friends up at Version 1 down south in Florida with uh, Misfits and a few others. Xset is somebody who I've been talking to recently. Just interviewed Clinton Sparks the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's taking a different approach on this, right? You have you have some that are saying, okay, we're going to get in these franchises. You know, we're going to have a Call of Duty team. We're going to have an Overwatch team. You have others exit. Okay, we're going way more entertainment focused. Really interesting that they're a newer org and they kind of saw how some other things had worked. Some of their ownership uh, used to be with FaZe. So you're, you're taking learnings and applying those. What is the approach of ghost gaming if you could put it in a soundbite form sure well the one thing all those orgs have in common and i'm also friends with 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 most of those folks and others um you know everybody's looking for a more diversified source of revenue right it's just diversified over prize winnings and competition which let's say was version 1.0 of some esports orgs, not sure. all, right? And so what that is varies. Um, the categories tend to be physical merchandise, digital merchandise, uh, digital fan clubs, events, entertainment, etc. Everybody's looking for corporate partnerships and sponsorship yep. dollars. And for almost all of the orgs, that's the largest piece of the pie chart. And I think it will continue to be the largest piece uh, for a long, long time, maybe forever. Hmm. But specific to Ghost, I think that the, you know, kind of the E for entertainment is a is a valid way to look at things. Competition is a form of content at the end of the day. Sure. And what everyone agrees about is this audience is content hungry. They love content. Absolutely. And so... It really is just for each team, the blend of how much that content are sweaty teams trying to win mm-hmm. and how much of that content is more based on the engagement side of things. And for Ghost, it's going to be a blend. I think that the two differentiators that we have, one is that long-term events are a big part of our strategy. That's where Skillshot and Ghost complement each other. Mm-hmm. Skillshot is doing some of the largest events out there already and ghost has teams and can bring eyeballs so they complement each other really well and then the other philosophy of ours is to be more vertically integrated so when we are participating in a game we really want to support all of the elements of the community for that game so in the case of rocket league we have a competitive team they're very very good and they play to win. We also have content creators that are putting out content on Twitch. We do community tournaments, so we're engaging with the community, Hmm. and we have an official partnership with the publisher, so there's a ghost-branded car inside the game that you can purchase. So it really is checking all of the, the boxes where the community should see Ghost supporting their passion for Rocket League whether they're into watching esports or just watching a more casual streamer or playing themselves in community tournaments. And that's really the philosophy we'd like to take across other games. We may not always get every one of them, but that's kind of the strategy. Interesting. Yeah. I think a lot of times what it's 
uh, appeared to be from a high-level perspective is with some of these orgs, it's kind of like, okay, you have the competitive teams almost just so you're in the category of esports, uh, which is the buzzword. And then, okay, now we need all these content creators so that we can monetize and better fulfill sponsorships and things of that nature. Um, I think that's a valid, I mean, that's a very valid perspective. I'd say it's a little bit more from just being in the category, though. Again, sure. the whole reason, think about it from the publisher's perspective. Not everyone is a pro player. It's not even 1% of their audience that is a pro player. And right. most people don't even play competitively. But the fact that that pro scene exists gives an aspirational goal oh, for absolutely. everybody else. It's the same, in my view, from an org. You don't have to have a pro team in every game you're participating in. But it is helpful because it gives that aspirational nature. Yeah, I think it's a great point that a lot of people don't realize that the majority of the the player base is not competitive. And I had a very interesting uh, view of Call of Duty when I was at GameStop. It was the year that they had, what was it, Blackout, where they basically did Fortnite mm -hmm. version of, of Call of Duty. And so they had to sacrifice something because they couldn't just add that on to their development. They had to choose, what do we do or what do we not do? Well, what they chose not to do was the campaign that year. And boy, did the community erupt in ways that were not all positive. And the learning from that was, wait a minute, there's all this content, there's this big buzz around Scump just, you know, having all these kills and, you know, seeing him on stage and, oh, you're choking, all this, this amazing content. But then the majority of the audience sees that, gets stoked to play the campaign, <laughs> not to compete themselves, right? And so that's a really interesting uh, kind of circular ecosystem there that's feeding each other in, in interesting ways sure yeah well there's a couple lessons there you know the first one is people just don't like something taken away it, you know like if it <laughs> was point. in the game and it's not in the game people raise their pitchforks like w we saw that numerous times as a publisher we never had a campaign we were always multiplayer but people don't like something that they had taken away but you're right at the end of the day people's passion is for the game for the IP of that game. And usually, if it's a multiplayer game, you're talking about campaign and story and production. But if it's a multiplayer game, a lot of it is just social. You know, it's just, it is community at the end of the day. For most people, it's community over competition. Um, and some percentage also enjoy watching competition, but they just like the vibe of the community. They have a shared passion. So at the end of the day, you know, what Ghost wants to do is bring people together around their shared passion and create that community. And some percentage of those will be into the competitive scene, but that's not necessarily a hundred percent and it's not, it may not even be the majority. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on sponsorship. You know, you mentioned obviously sponsorship is the number one source of revenue for orgs currently. You stated, you know, maybe it will forever, a very long time forever. <laughs> one of the big differences for our audience that's not as, closely tied to esports is a big difference between esports revenue and traditional sports revenue is media rights where in traditional sports you got these multi-year multi-billion dollar deals and sometimes sponsorship just seems like the cherry on top that is just more of a nice to have uh currently i believe in esports media rights are a very distant second in revenue and i think a lot of that has to do with the difference of uh programmatic television 
is what uh, traditional sports own. A lot easier to sell, easier to package, you could say. And now you've got all this OTT, this streaming for esports. Curious your perspective on that uh, relation of media rights and sponsorship as it is currently. So it's definitely the case on media rights. Uh, I, I would say with media rights, it really is that the demographic is used to watching the content for free and there's only so much competition in the space on where to watch it. When there was a lot of competition of platforms, um, you know, Facebook was making a big play. Microsoft had Mixer. That's Mm -hmm. in addition to Twitch, which, you know, as people know, as the majority of the market, YouTube Live, there were some pretty big media rights deals. I mean, I can tell you, I personally, you know, there were eight figure media rights deals that uh, that we were able to obtain at the right time. It's just a matter of having a very valuable property and a platform that wants the eyeballs associated sure. with that property. But I don't think that is going to be long term the big opportunity that it is with traditional sports today. So that leaves sponsorships, partnerships, and it also really, I think the it's a lot of blue sky around just more direct monetization of the user base itself. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a user base that is older than people think, 18 to 34, well earning, over indexing in tech, over indexing and liking the latest gadgets. But it also reaches a very young audience that's actually the most passionate. Every generation gets more passionate. Those people grow up, they buy cars, they buy life insurance. So, you know, you need to be patient if you're in this space for sure if you're on the org side but more and more brands i believe will spend in the space and also organizations and platforms are going to get more and more clever at delivering value directly to their user whether that's physical merchandise whether that's digital merchandise whether that's monetized fan clubs or nft experiences mm-hmm. we're very early days But as long as there's passion there, the monetization will come. And I say this kind of from the perspective of a publisher, all of the games we ever made were were free to play, you know. And and when when I first heard of the free to play model a couple years into the game development cycle and it was popular in Asia, there was a lot of skepticism and we were like, we're not a nonprofit, like we have to pay all these employees (laughs) and at the beginning of the cycle, there was nothing you could buy in the game. And, and it oh, was wow. just engagement only. But with enough time, you learn, if you have passion, how you can monetize that audience. And I believe esports or specifically will be able to do that as well. Yeah, uh, along that same vein, I'm, I'm really impressed with what you've built with Skillshot and Ghost. Because it's, it's almost the entire ecosystem from a, a brand sponsorship perspective right and so when i look at what you've done for my sponsorship experience i'm like okay wait a minute you own the production company you've got a studio where you can host events and uh stream from and then you've also got a team who you can do sponsorships there they have content creators can you fill in the gaps there for our audience how does it would a brand best work with skillshot and or ghost well you kind of nailed it. I, I mean, we want to be a, a single solution provider 
for brands because one of the great things about esports and one of the complicated things about esports is there's a lot of different types of inventory. And as you know, if you're a brand, you often have different people buying different things. You might have someone in charge of experiential who does events. You have someone in charge of media who buys on a CPM basis. You have someone in charge of maybe influencers or creators. You have someone who does sponsorships like sports. It's, and esports does all the above plus more, plus custom content. So we have, um, over the last two years, been trying to assemble properties so that it can be easy for a brand. So exactly as you said, we can do live events, we can do custom productions, you can sponsor a team, you could be on a digital item like our car in Rocket League where we put a put a brand, currently our friends from Control, the, the meal replacement uh, yep. drinker on there. You can, we can do custom tournaments, you can do a creator, an influencer campaign or just buy eyeballs on Twitch. We announced a couple months ago a collegiate property. So we have the official state collegiate property for Georgia. So Georgia Tech, UGA, Western cool. Georgia, all Kennesaw, all of those schools play in our league. Because in talking to brands, many were burnt in early esports deals because they saw huge numbers. Yep. And it was so new that no one not intentionally, just people didn't know the right questions to ask, I believe. I'll, I'll take people as well-intentioned. But maybe half of these viewers are in Russia because of the title, and the other right. half are in Asia. And maybe the brand doesn't have any restaurant locations in Russia and Asia. And those impressions don't do them any good. So we are, and I think all esports orgs are getting better at, you know, trying to really know their audience. And obviously you have to match it with the brand goals or it doesn't make sense for everyone. So yeah. anyway, yeah, we're trying to assemble that. If you just want to reach a college audience, well, we've got the Georgia Esports League where at least in this particular regional aspect, you can do that. And we have some partnerships nationally with other leagues um, where they can supply that inventory or maybe you want to reach more of a full North American audience and our pro teams are the way to do that. Yeah, that's great. I, I uh, think one of the mistakes, if you will, from an industry perspective was touting these huge numbers without enough context that brands and agencies who just thought, oh, esports is the silver bullet to reach youth. Um, 500 million esports enthusiasts. Uh, that was a big number a while back, but it's like, wait a minute, which country are they in? Which games are they playing? What are the deeper demographics there? Because I guarantee you that if I am uh, the Dallas Fuel, I am not reaching 500 million people. You know, it's all specific. Yeah, you're right. And those are the tactics. But I think it's, you know, and it's a, it's a balance between being very clear and transparent on the tactics and the ROI, but also not losing the headline that you started with, which is, from my standpoint, esports is the way to reach youth. You just have to be careful and deliberate and, and figure it out. But it is, it, it, to me, it's very much like when social media came on the scene. And for many years, brands thought social media is not really a thing. And, right. uh, and just because some campaigns may not have been effective over social media because the creative was off or the targeting was off or the tool set wasn't as sophisticated as mm -hmm. it is now... No brand today is going to say social media is not a way to reach people. 
And in my view, esports gaming culture, gaming video is the way to be relevant to the next generation. But as you said, you just you got to work with a partner who's going to understand your goals and work to make them happen. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think uh, data, being able to tell that story, understanding who you're targeting, um, who who is your audience? What are they playing? Uh, I've always said that, you know, if I'm a global brand, one of the smartest plays would be appear to be sponsoring League of Legends, right? Like, oh, it's the biggest esport title in the world. And so if I've got those dollars, I'm going to go there. Well, what if your target audience doesn't play League of Legends? What if they play Counter-Strike or Smash or something like that? And so I think for a lot of brands who have had a uh, less than positive experience sponsoring esports, I think it's like, okay, totally understand. I've, I've been on the agency side too. So I understand how important those dollars are to work. But let's take a step back and say, maybe it wasn't that sponsoring esports was the wrong thing for you to do. Maybe it was that you sponsored that league or that team or etc and you didn't have a full uh view of the ecosystem and the data and the decision making ability to say oh it's this let's crawl walk run and and grow from there agree yeah 100 100 percent. and again in terms of data you know esports isn't perfect either but at the end of the day another reason i'm just long and a believer it is a digital product for a digital generation on digital yep. platforms there's a lot of data that can and will continue to be collected and and that is an opportunity you know for brands and for the org itself to better serve its fans you know the more you get to know about them so absolutely well i want to get your take on one thing and then i want to plug some things with you as well before the end of our time here one is you know you have a, a great presence in atlanta right i mean so you guys are based there with skillshot and ghost i believe that you're the board chair of the atlanta esports alliance um you're an adjunct professor there a lot of cvbs across the country a lot of cities are saying, what does esports mean for me? What are the different ways that I can leverage this thing that the kids in my community are so passionate about, but I don't know much about myself? Um, can you help us make a little more sense of that for cities? Yeah. I mean, esports is uh, huge for education in your local city market and also economic development, and they go hand in hand. So I'll give you just a very specific example, and then we can back up a little bit, right? Um, next week, League of Legends semifinals are coming to town, depending on when this airs, the, the week of Halloween. Yeah. So uh, the 29th and the 30th of October, League of Legends semifinals in State Farm Arena, where the NBA team plays. Tickets sold out in five minutes. So that's wow. a great event for the city, but but what all goes on around that, right? That's going to have economic impact. People come to town, they buy hotels, they buy food, they buy merchandise, they go to bars, etc. Leading up to that, there are a number of activities. Uh, we're supporting our friends at Community, which is a nonprofit focused on getting more black and yep. brown folks into the gaming industry. They're doing a kickback event a few days before in partnership with Riot. We're helping with some of the production. 
that is an event to engage a new demographic to League of Legends, candidly. Like, it's more of that urban audience, and that's exposure for the brand. But that's also a hospitality play that's going to have sure. a hip-hop concert in addition to education. Uh, we're going to do an open house at our place, which is good business development for us. We're working with local nonprofits like the YMCA and others to, thanks to Riot, unlocking some tickets for populations that this might be their first esports event. This might open the eyes for careers for many people. So that's one particular event. But what's key is the IP holder, Riot, and their full production company work with the Atlanta Esports Alliance, the equivalent of our sports commission or convention bureau, to really do a 360-degree activation, hmm. not only educating them on why Atlanta was a great place to host the event. We have this giant venue, medium-sized venue, small venue, but that we have a community and we're developing all this economic development around it. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. Right. And so we always encourage cities and states to really lean into understanding what esports is and I mentioned education because the way you really build a thriving market is you have the patience to start young. So Georgia was one of the first five states to institute esports at the high school level as an official varsity high school sport. Now there's about 25 states that have done that. And the collegiate scene, many, many Georgia universities have scholarships, have coaches, have top performing teams. And so when you're really starting early, you're building a fan base that helps get butts in seats when these yeah. events come. And then you create that flywheel of more events and more jobs and so forth. Yeah. And to add to that, Asante Bradford is a friend of mine. And so I know that he's worked with the state of Georgia to incentivize production, esports production, in the same way that we see and we know that uh, movie production, music production is is incentivized. And so being, just really enabling people to do what they want to do anyway and saying, hey, if you want to do that, you're going to pay less taxes if you do it here. <laughs> That's Tax a good credits reason. help. I mean, yeah, we, we compete against a lot of production companies in Los Angeles. There's a lot of great talent there. But the fact that, candidly, like our space and labor are a bit cheaper in Georgia than in the California market. And then there's sure. a tax incentive on top of that. Uh, that's helpful, right? It, it means that IP owners can execute events, you know, through us and, or through others in the state and keep a little bit more for themselves. And in an industry that's still growing and is still looking for profitability, as you mentioned before, whether you're an org or an event provider, that's very helpful. Yeah, and you also have that the role of an adjunct professor around esports as well. I'm curious for our parents who are listening, who are saying, okay, maybe I didn't play a lot of video games when I was a kid. Uh, little Johnny is super into video games. Um, I am scared and confused about this in some way, but also want to support his passion. Can you help make sense of uh, what are career opportunities that emerge from this passion of video games? Good question. So gaming, I'll say gaming and esports, because together, they're a massive industry. They're the biggest entertainment industry on the planet. It is often said, and it's true, you have to take film and music and put them together 
and they're still smaller than gaming. It's not even right. close. 180 billion. Those are, that's a lot of jobs. And then parents think the jobs are sitting on a couch playing a video game. Those are very, very few of the jobs. Uh, programmers, artists, there are more working artists on planet Earth today, thanks to video games than wow. ever before. So uh, designers, and then any other job that you have at any other company, meaning an accountant, a lawyer, HR person, that's right, business development, partnership sales. Uh, and that's just on the game development side. When it comes to esports, all the jobs you'd find at a sports marketing type uh, function or degree program you find in in esports. So yeah, there's a a ton of career options out there, and uh, more and more programs available to ignite the passion of your of your kid. So I'm a parent. Like anything else, gaming should be done in balance. But when it's done the right way, it provides all of the benefits you would think about from traditional sports. Uh, it's just a cerebral intellectual sport more than a physical one in most cases. Yeah, I love that. Everything from performing on stage to, hey, if you have a long lineage of lawyers and, you know, everybody in your family has to be a lawyer, guess what? Your kid could become a lawyer and be an esports lawyer like Justin Jacobson or Jonathan Jordan or some of my friends there across the industry who are utilizing both their passion and then their their expertise that they uh, accomplished uh, passing the bar, if you will. Um, well, we have just yep. a couple minutes here left. Um, you've got a couple events coming up. I want to make sure that we give a chance to to talk through. I believe Esports Summit is coming, and then that is going to be leading up to DreamHack. So why don't you tell us all about that? Yeah, thanks. So mid-November, uh, November 17th and 18th is a business conference, Esports Summit, and that leads into... DreamHack Atlanta, which is a massive consumer festival. So if, um, if you find this sort of conversation and content interesting, that is, what is the business of esports? Uh, many folks from the business industry side will be there, including game publishers, global head of sponsorship for Twitch, uh, traditional sports brands from the Braves and the Hawks and others, how they think about esports, other mm. esports endemic teams. It's going to be a great lineup of speakers from the industry side. And one of the more unusual parts of this conference is the theme is connecting play with learning. So there's just as many world class leaders coming from the education side. So whether that's my friend Doc Haskell from Boise State, coach of the year in collegiate to those building world-class programs at the high school level, even at the middle school level, uh, thought leaders that talk to parents of esports athletes. So we're going to combine esports industry and esports education together for two days. There'll also be some showcase student matches where you can see competitions and see behind the scenes of all these jobs that go into producing an esports event besides just the kids playing on the stage. We'll literally show you behind the scenes everything that goes into making an event happen. So that's, that's the wonderful. 17th and 18th. And then if you decide you want to travel to Atlanta for that, we want to make it worth your while. So Summit includes a pass to DreamHack Atlanta. As many people probably know, DreamHack is an international gaming festival originally out of Sweden, 
This is the fourth time they're coming to Atlanta. Probably about 20,000 people in Georgia World Congress Center. Yeah. Fortnite tournament for $100,000. Magic the Gathering, StarCraft II. Uh, bring your own computer, land tournaments, and just about every game you can imagine. So that's the two-day weekend following Esports Summit. Would love to see uh, see a lot of you there. Yeah, I'd really encourage people to go to DreamHack, especially. Um, Sometimes, I mean, I'm the biggest fan of the business side of things, but sometimes we can forget that all this ROI and monetization and strategy and sponsorship and production and XYZ all is because we're playing the games that we enjoy, right? And there's a lot of people too who are either coming in this industry or have entered this industry recently who have never been to a competitive event or a festival like DreamHack. And so I would definitely point to both of them, of course, but if you haven't experienced competitive gameplay, if you have experienced a really player-focused event, Go to DreamHack because you're going to see every single aspect of that, all the way from the land to the Fortnite um, uh, tournament that you mentioned, and everything in between. It's it's really something to behold. Yeah, you nailed it, and I would I would agree. My first tip to everyone, even you know, more than looking at an industry report, as you say, is show up at an esports event that's live and just see the passion, and you'll know there's something there that will. Yes open your eyes in a different way. So whether it's DreamHack Atlanta or an event, you know, in your local market, um, if you have a chance to go and you're esports curious, you should, you should go and you'll be interested in learning more. Yeah, seeing is believing when it comes to esports. I remember my first event was a CSGO event and, you know, I knew about esports, but I hadn't, you know, spent much time deeper into the industry like I have now. And, you know, my reaction was, wow, the energy in this arena rivals a hockey game. And uh, it's when you see people who are that passionate and cheering on their teams and booing the team they're going against, it's like, man, I want people to feel that way about my brand. How can, how can we make that happen? Yeah, I always say, imagine your favorite sports teams playing, but you combine it with the energy of like an EDM or hip hop concert because there's so much audio visual at these major events giant led and fog and lights and so you know it combines that sports and music in something very experiential and cool it's special yeah so to let you go here todd how can people get a hold of you skillshot ghost get signed up for these wonderful events in the ways that you would like them to yeah so if you go to esportssummit.live l-i-v-e you can see all the information many of the featured speakers and register for that particular event and love to connect with folks i uh, post about these topics really on two platforms Uh, linkedin is number one so todd allen harris on linkedin shoot me a connect i'm very active there and then a bit on twitter as well also at todd allen a-l-a-n Harris. So, love to continue the conversation there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, making sense of all of these different aspects of the esports ecosystem. It's a pleasure to have you, and I think our audience learned a lot from this episode. Awesome. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks again for uh, what you do, John, putting content out there and having guests share their perspective. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. 
Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.